So glad you're here this morning. I'm feeling a little anxious this morning. It's normal for me sometimes on Saturday night to get a little bit of pre-message stress as I'm thinking about what I'm going to say tomorrow and working through the thoughts in my mind. But today was a little bit different. I think there was spiritual warfare being waged on me even in my dreams. I had this vivid and bizarre dream last night. It was so vivid I can almost picture some of you in it. I dreamt that this room was just just absolutely filled with people. I mean, every seat was taken. We could not have gotten any more people in the room at all, which was an awesome thing. And I was already thinking, wow, it's time to go to two services, which was really, really cool. And then as I got into the message, the message turned out to be a real dog, and it was just going nowhere. And I was really struggling to the point where I just gave up in the middle of it, and I said, you know what, I'm just going to stop right here. We'll just pick up the rest. But before I could even finish, half of you were leaving and by the time I said the last prayer, there were only like 20 people left in here. So I say all that to say, please stay. <laughs> Give me a shot. Let me finish this thing up. Um, this, is going to be, this, is going to be worth, this is going to be worth your while, I hope. And not because of me, but because I think, I think we need to hear what these texts are saying to us today. And I think we need to hear them deeply. And I'm praying that they will weigh heavily on us. I mean, I want you to take this home and and wrestle with this. Um, I want you to feel this as you go because um, this is just so critical. You know, we've been talking about these missional habits of an everyday missionary. And one of the conversations we've had on a church staff level is, is our desire for these things to actually take, not just to be a short-term topical series. And you know, we don't do too many topical series around here. We typically go verse by verse through books, and that's intentional, that's strategic for us. But every now and then it's helpful to stop and pause and say, who are we? And what are we supposed to be doing, and are we doing it? And we tried to capture that over months and months of times as staff. We were talking about what are those values that identify us? What are those habits we hope to see in our people? What DNA do we want to see really take so that five years from now, ten years from now, we can say, this is who we are. This is what we do. Uh, this is what we're about. This is what makes us tick. And so we've been going through these values, and today this habit... The habit of everyday missionary is the habit of obeying. Now, it sounds like a broad habit, the habit of obeying, but let me talk about at the end. How do you cultivate the habit of obeying? Why do we obey? There's a missional value behind the habit of doing what God says. Jesus himself said it this way in Luke 6, 46, and it is one of the most pithy, powerful statements that you'll ever find in Scripture. I mean, it's a sermon by itself with no elaboration necessary. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? Why do you call me Master? Why do you call me Lord, but you don't do what I say? That's an oxymoron. That's an incompatible statement. That doesn't work. You can't call Jesus Lord and not do what he says. It's fundamental and not be faithful to him. The missional value is fidelity, faithfulness to King Jesus, faithfulness to King Jesus. Uh, let me do a quick review, just real quick. I want you to see a thumbnail sketch of where we've been so you see how these things fit together. These are our values in no particular order. We said our first value is this. We value community. God's people really being family together, genuine community, a spiritual family that presents a compelling witness to our neighbors, around us, to the nations. This is who God's people are, an outpost of God's kingdom here on earth. Community. How do we fuel the value of community? By the habit of gathering, we will not give up meeting together, as some do. But more so, as we see the day of Christ approaching, we're going to gather together. Next value we consider is maturity. Maturity. It's natural for those people who are in Christ 
to grow up, to become fully formed, to reach maturity in Christ, to become like him who's the head, Jesus, to grow up in him in all things. So we're not like children tossed about by every whim of doctrine and teaching and philosophy, but we adhere to Christ and we're becoming more and more like him. How do we fuel maturity? Through the habits of growth, the intentional, specific choices to grow, how we study the word, how we pray together, how we disciple one another, growing. Our third value was generosity, or generosity and hospitality, that we as God's people have been given everything, and as God's people who have been given everything, God gives us what he, he gives, he does what he does in our lives, not simply so we would consume it, but so that we would convey it. So that we would pass on his blessings to neighbors and nations that God would use us to be generous people. And that we would give not just our possessions, not just our financial gifts, but we would give ourselves as well. This is the essence of generosity. How do we do this? Well, giving. The habit of giving. Opening up our homes. Using our time. Giving our resources. Saying, God, whatever I have is at your disposal because it's yours. I'm a steward. I'm a manager. I'm not an owner. You're the owner. And one day you're going to call us into account for what you called us to manage because it's yours, generosity. The fourth habit, which we considered last week, or the fourth value, was intentionality. Intentionality. And the idea is pretty simple. The premise, I hope, was clear. If we don't intentionally choose to do these things, they won't happen. We'll fall into our ruts and routines. Aware or unaware, we'll return to selfishness, self-centeredness, just our own thing. And if we're not intentional about the mission that God has called us on, if we're not intentional about being everyday missionaries, if we don't see our primary identity, whatever other occupation we've been given, vocation, if we don't see our primary identity as representatives of Christ, we are his ambassadors, Paul said, God making his appeal through us. If we don't do that, we're not going to be everyday missionaries. So how do we fuel the value, how do we create that value and see it lived out in us of intentionality? We do that through engaging, engaging as a verb, not as a personality trait, not as an adjective, but as a verb. We're intentionally engaging people. How can I make contact with this person? How can I get into their world or invite them into mine? How can I use the relationships that I have? How can I leverage the opportunities that I have, the positions that God has placed me in, the groups I belong to, the clubs I'm a part of, the teams that I'm on, whatever it may be, How can I intentionally leverage those to engage people with the gospel, with the goodness of Christ? This is who God is. This is what God has done for me. This is what God will do for you. That's a habit, the habit of engaging. And so I challenged you this past week to have one intentional gospel conversation. I don't want to embarrass anybody, but I do want to celebrate this. How many of you had an intentional gospel conversation this week with someone? You prayed about someone, you engaged someone this week. Raise your hand. Okay, listen, if you didn't, do it this week. Now let's start that as a habit. Let's be thinking about that and do uh, what many of us did. As you get close to the end of the week, you start thinking, I haven't had a gospel conversation yet. I need to go back to the grocery store and buy some more milk. I got to do something. I, I got to go find a reason to borrow the drill from the neighbor or whatever it may be. I got to have a gospel conversation. That's just who we are, what we do. Well, today our value, as I've already stated, is fidelity. You know, fidelity is not a common word, is it? When was the last time you used that in a sentence or conversation? The idea of allegiance of understanding who Jesus is and being faithful to him. Not just believing in him, but faithful obedience to him. The idea, the habit that drives this idea of fidelity, that demonstrates this is truly our value, that puts that in action, is everyday obedience. Here's the premise, and it's simple. 
Jesus is king. Jesus is king. That's what the Bible says. This is what the Gospel of Mark proclaimed when Jesus came. He says, the kingdom of God is here. The Bible says when Jesus began his speaking, that's what he said. The kingdom of God is here. Repent. Turn from your sin and self and turn to God. Repent. Believe the gospel. Believe the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done in the kingdom of God in the world. The kingdom of God is here. Repent. Believe the gospel. And then what did he say? Follow me. Follow me. Why? Because I'm king. Jesus commands us to turn from our sins and trust in him. He commands us to believe the good news of God's great salvation. He doesn't simply invite us to. He commands us to. And as the king, he commands our absolute surrender. He's the king. We're to do what he says. We're to go where he sends. We're to live our lives fully under his authority, fully in submission to his will, to his guidance. That is biblical Christianity. It may not be Contemporary Christianity, it may not be modern American Christianity, it may not be typical evangelical Christianity today, but that's biblical Christianity. Come and follow me because I'm the king. Consider some of these scriptures. Here's Daniel. Daniel the prophet, whom God gave an incredible vision of King Jesus to. Listen to what Daniel said. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, the, the absolute personification of perfection. And he came to the ancient of days, that's God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Why? That all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Do you you feel the weight of that? You know, if you're not a Christian today, let me give you an invitation here at the beginning of the message. If you're new to this sort of thing, we usually give these at the end. Here's why you should turn from the life that you're living with whoever's ruling your life, deciding what you do and how you do it, whoever's setting the course, setting the agenda, setting the priorities, giving the value, setting the directions for your life, and begin following Jesus. Here's why. Because he's the king. He's the king of everything, everywhere, for all time, and one day everybody's going to see it. We're all going to bow before this king. I want you to bow now. I want you to enjoy him now. I want you to experience him now before he's the king that judges you and condemns you to everlasting death. I want him to be the king that says, come now and celebrate my kingdom with me forever and ever because you're a co-heir, you're a co-ruler with me for eternity. That's the reason. He's king. There is no other king. He's the king of all kings. He's the Lord of all lords and everything will surrender to him and submit to him. Consider what Paul wrote to the Philippians about Jesus' coming into the world. Daniel had a vision of Jesus. Paul says this is what Jesus did. Jesus, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 and following, Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. It means he said, I will, I will let go of this. I'll let go of my place in heaven. I'll let go of my position of eternal worship. I'll, I'll let go of this for the sake of you. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Who is above Jesus? No one who has authority over Jesus. Jesus is ultimate. He puts him above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
That's Jesus. Or consider Paul writing in Romans, the preface to the greatest theological book in the New Testament. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Circle that word gospel. Here's the good news, the gospel of God. The good news that God brings to a dark, broken, sin-sick world bent on its own destruction and hell-bound. What's the good news in that situation? Here's the good news, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. That's the Old Testament concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. He was of the line of David, as Matthew's gospel tells us. He was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Jesus has always been God's Son. But upon his death and resurrection, God says he's a Son of God in power. You put hyphens between those if we're, correct, if we're interpreting this correctly. He wasn't declared in power to be the Son of God. He's declared to be the Son of God in power. All authority is His. All power is His. And what is the purpose of His rule and reign? That all the nations would obey Him. That everyone would su- surrender to Him and succumb to His authority. Everybody, everywhere. King Jesus. That's why we're to be allegiant. That's why fidelity is our most important missional value. I want us to pray together this morning. Father God, speak to us today about yourself. Show us Jesus. Enlighten our our understanding through your word. And Father, call us. Father, I pray that today there will be some that will be so, so clearly called out by you that they know, they know. That you're speaking to them. They know you're saying, I want you to do this. And I want you to go here. And I I want you to become this. So, Father, call us out. Father, I remember when you called me. And I remember when you made that calling clear. I can remember time and place and setting. Father, here in this room, January 30th, 2022, I pray there'll be some that will say the exact same thing of today. But, Father, for all of us who are called by the name of Christ who bear the same calling to be your ambassadors. Show us what you'd have us to do. And Father, pray we do it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, here's our central text this morning. This is Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 through 28. Listen to what Jesus said. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Let me ask you a quick question. I know we're not in a small group Bible study or an intimate D group, but to whom does that text apply? There's a key and simple word there, anyone. Anyone that follows Jesus, anyone that would say to Jesus, yes, I want to be a Christian. Yeah, I want to be a Christ follower. Yeah, I want to go to heaven when I die. I want eternal life. Use whatever term you like. I want to be born again. To anyone who would come after Jesus, these are the criterion for it. If anyone will come after me, any of you, if you want to come after me, you want to follow me, you want to obey, Mark chapter 1, the kingdom of God is here, repent, believe the gospel, follow me, here's what it requires of you. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. So the rest of this is all about that statement. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? 
For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he'll repay each person according to what he's done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. I'm a little bit of a history buff. That was my major. I was a religion and history major in college. One, because I felt I was called to one, and one, because I enjoyed and I liked reading history. And I remember reading just so much Civil War stories and things, and you know, in the Civil War, one of the most prestigious things that one could do, one of the most honorable things that someone could do would be the person that bears the flag, that carries the flag into battle. Now, if you watch some of the images of conflict and Civil War, um, the brutality is, is hard to fathom. And the means of waging war are so totally different than modern warfare. But imagine thousands of men marching towards each other with instruments of death at close range and... The most significant thing you could do was carry the flag into battle. There was nothing riskier in a battle. Cannons roaring around you, muskets and later rifle fire all through you. Those carrying that flag at the front of the line walked into the fray fearlessly. It shouldn't be surprising to us that many of them met a quick and grim death. Here's a brief story from the website American Civil War Story about a group of Union soldiers bearing the flag at the Battle of Gettysburg. Listen to what it said. The flag was carried by color bearer Abel G. Peck, a tall, straight, handsome man, and as brave a soldier as ever gave up his life for his country. He was instantly killed almost at the battle, almost at the beginning of the famous charge of the Iron Brigade. The flag was immediately seized by Private Thomas Ballow, who was desperately wounded immediately after and died a few weeks later. The flag was then picked up by private August Ernst, who was instantly killed. Corporate Andrew Wagner then took the colors and carried them until shot through the breast, from the effects of which he died about a year after the close of the war. When Corporal Wagner fell, Colonel Henry Morrill took the flag and gallantly attempted to rally the few survivors of the regiment. But Private William Kelly insisted on carrying it, saying to Colonel Morrill, you shall not carry the flag while I am alive. The gallant fellow held it aloft and almost instantly fell, shot through the heart. Private L. Spaldingly then took the flag from the hands of Kelly and carried it until he himself was badly wounded. Colonel Morrill again seized the flag and was soon after shot in the head and carried from the field. After the fall of Colonel Morrill, the flag was carried by a soldier whose name has never been ascertained. He was seen by Captain Edwards, who was now in command of the regiment, lying upon the ground, badly wounded, still grasping the flag in his hands. Captain Edwards took the flag from him and carried it himself until the few men left of the regiment fell back and reached Culp's Hill. Captain Edwards is the only man who is known to have carried the flag that day who was not killed or wounded. In his book, Gospel Allegiance, Matthew Bates writes about these brave men. He said, when one reads an account of their faith, the swift demise of the first flag bearer is not what grabs attention. Nor is it the sheer number of casualties, even though eight men die in succession while attempting to carry just one of the flags. What really arrests is the courage and tenacity of each man as he eagerly volunteers to loft the flag, knowing full well that death almost certainly awaits. What motivated such reckless boldness? The flags representing the Union and the Confederacy were not just arbitrary scraps of cloth. They were symbols of great and momentous causes, preservations of national unity, the right of states to political self-determination, regional pride, etc., to which the North and South had resolutely committed. Any soldier brave enough to take up the flag knew the meaning of loyalty to leaders, comrades, and country. Can you imagine the scene? Knowing that taking it up would mean death, 
That's fidelity. That's saying at any cost, I will sacrifice myself for the sake of that which I believe, for the sake of that which I follow, for the sake of allegiance. Jesus calls us to fidelity. And the language he uses is the language of sacrifice. Fidelity to King Jesus requires, according to that text we just looked at, these three things. You saw them. Self-denial. He says anyone who must, will follow me has to deny himself. What, is, what does self-denial look like on a practical way? That means your life is not ultimately about what you want to get from it or enjoy in it. That means the purpose of your life is not ultimately about you. There's actually an eternity on the other side of this. And those who live a short-sighted life, a self-centered life, will find that their regrets are eternal. Self-denial. It's not ultimately about you. What does God want you to do and be for His sake, for His glory, for His name? He's called you into something bigger and better with everlasting reward. Self-denial. Self-sacrifice. Take up your cross. Now again, you've heard me say this before and I won't belabor the point. While the idea or the imagery of cross has become very ubiquitous in our culture, we, we wear it as jewelry, it's, uh, it's one of the most commonly tattooed items on people, it's, it's festooned on cars and t-shirts and wherever else we may find it. When Jesus says, take up your cross, that's an eye-opening, what are you serious sort of statement. The people would say, wait, you're saying if I follow you, I've got to be willing or potentially face a very brutal death for you, take up your cross. A cross wasn't just a symbolic uh, figure for religious expression or identity. No, cross was an instrument of death. You want to follow me, you might die for this. And we know historically that most of those who were his apostles did, in fact, die for this. All but one died a brutal death for this. What about surrender? Follow me. Follow me. Leave your nets. Follow me. If you're a fisherman, leave your accounting books and follow me if you're a tax collector. Leave your herds and follow me if you're a shepherd. Put everything else down and follow me. That's surrender. I'm going to go with you. I'm going to learn from you. I'm going to become like you. I'm going to do what you send me out to do. Come and follow me. In John chapter 12, verse 24, Jesus said something that's so profound, and I almost thought about this week just ditching everything else I was going to say and just speaking on this one verse, but I'll just give it to you briefly. John 12, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. What is he saying there? He's giving a powerful metaphor of the life he's called us to live you can cling to what you have you can take that seed that is you you can hold on to it tightly or you can surrender it back to the ground you can give it up it can be buried you can die to yourself and in dying to yourself and what you have and what you hold and what you want to be you allow God to create in you new life and what he wants to do through you. He says the seed, unless it dies, it bears nothing. You know, God saved you for more than just you. God wants you to surrender your life to him fearlessly. And that's a hard thing to do, I get. It's easy to say from here. 
But it's a hard and necessary step of true discipleship to say, God, here you go. What do you want to do with this? Plant me where you will. Take from me what you will. Grow out of my life and my sacrifice what you will. I'm going to die to myself, to my plans, to my ambitions, so that, God, you can use my life for a harvest, whatever you choose. But i got to die first. got to give it up first. got to surrender first. What does Jesus say we gain from this? What's the reward of this? First, he says you get self-fulfillment. I mean, I love this statement. Listen, listen to how he words it. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And for all those struggling with why am I here, what's my life supposed to be about? For all those in my age range with, your, with our midlife crises and what's my life been valuable towards and what am I going to use the remaining years of my life to do? What am I going to go after? For those younger and considering college or career or future, what does God want me to be and do? Who am I? So what he says, you can lose your life and find it for my sake. You want to find life? You want to find purpose? You want to find what sounds so self-centered and modern pop psychology-esque self-fulfillment? This is who you are. This is what I want you to be. That's in Christ. That's in Christ. You can find self-fulfillment there. You can find it now. You can lose it. Give it up. God, what do you want me to be? And then find this is me. This is what God made me for. This is what God wants me to do. We also gain secure reward. We gain secure reward. We forfeit the world, and we gain Christ's reward. His words are so powerful, so poignant. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? I mean, what do you get if you get everything? Well, what have you got? I mean, the equation is simple, and it's based on eternity. It's based on time and duration. You get everything this world's got. What have you got? He says, what if you go after all these things with your life and you gain them? What do you have? You've gained the world, but you've lost your soul. As he said, instead, store up for yourself treasures. Instead of going after the world's treasure, store up for yourself treasures where thieves can't take it from you. Where rust and moth can't corrupt it. Where governments can't tax it from you. Where nothing can touch it. Because it comes from God. You gain secure reward. That's what we gain. So here are the diagnostic questions for us this morning as we consider fidelity, allegiance. And they're big. They're not light. First question for you is this. Who is Jesus to you? Sounds simple enough, right? I mean, who's Jesus to me? Write it out as a word. I mean, Jesus is alternatively sometimes or alternately friend. What a friend we have in Jesus. Forgiver, helper, companion, resource. Who is he? And I'm not saying he's not those things. I don't deny the the theological worth of some of those old songs, but he's got to be something more. He's got to be king. And if we have a notion of Jesus, if we're Christian, and our notion of Jesus doesn't include Jesus as king, Everything about how we follow him and how we worship him, what we do with him, is going to be skewed. It's going to be off-kilter, off-center, irregular, unbiblical. He's more than just your buddy. 
He's more than just that one who's available in crisis or emergency. He's more than just that occasional companion when you seek him. He's king. He came in glory. He came to establish a kingdom as he declares an everlasting one. He says you can be part of that kingdom now, my rule and reign over your life, so that you can enjoy as a co-regent with me, a co-ruler with me, the eternal one that's coming with all of its rewards. But Jesus has got to be king. Second question you've got to ask yourself if you consider yourself Christian today. We throw around this word gospel a lot. But there's so much disparity, even among respected Christian leaders, about what that word really means. And I suspect if we kicked it around a lot in our small groups, in our gatherings, our conversations, we'd find quite a bit of disparity as well. Gospel. What gospel did you believe? Gospel, its most basic core, means this is the good news of God. This gospel I bring, this good news of God. What news have you been told? What what news did you believe? I heard good news this morning. I heard that Tom Brady retired. Don't be a hater. And then I heard later he didn't retire. What news do I believe now? I'm hoping, to, I'm hoping to win a playoff game here with my team one of these days. I haven't in 26 years. Good news. What good news did you believe about Jesus? Because there's so many different versions of the story. What does the biblical good news say? It tells us these things. The first part of the good news is that Jesus has always existed as the Son of God, as King. God decreed him to be that. He gave him dominion and authority. He put the world at his feet. Jesus. Jesus was sent by the Father. Jesus took on human flesh at the will of the Father in fulfillment of God's promises in the Old Testament, particularly to David. He sent Jesus to take on flesh. Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He makes peace possible with God. Jesus was raised after being buried from death. He was raised bodily according to the Scriptures for our justification. Jesus then appeared to many witnesses He demonstrated that he is, in fact, alive. He showed them. Jesus ascended and now is, according to the Scriptures, enthroned at the right hand of the Father. Jesus, as we'll see beginning next week in the book of Acts, sends his Spirit, his Holy Spirit, to empower his kingdom in the world, to empower his rule and reign in the world. And we know that Jesus is coming again to rule and to reign. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Jesus is coming back as king. What do you do now with that good news? Repent. Turn from your sin and turn to him. Believe this good news and follow him. Follow him so that when Jesus returns, it will not be a day of dreadful judgment for you. It will be a day of awesome celebration. This is the return of Christ. What gospel did you believe? If I just pray this prayer and ask Jesus in my heart, I get to go to heaven when I die? But meanwhile, I can live however I please until then. I just say these things. I repeat these words. Is that what I believed? What did you believe? Have you surrendered your life to King Jesus? That's the gospel. That begs this third question. So who rules your life, really? How do I know? If at the headwaters of my salvation experience is a right understanding of the gospel, and I have believed in it, I have embraced it, I put my faith in him. Not just that I believe that Jesus did these things factually. The Bible says the devil believes those things. The devils believe those things and tremble. It's not just, yeah, I think that stuff's true. 
No, belief, biblically, has the idea of more than just giving my agreement towards. It means surrendering my life to. It's not just faith, it's faithfulness. It's fidelity. It's allegiance. Jesus has raised his banner, and I've said, let me carry that flag. I will carry that flag. I will fight in that fight. I will fight for that king. I will be faithful to that king. I will, be, I will have fidelity to that king forever because he's king of kings and lord of lords. I have joined the army of a king. I'm no longer in the kingdom of darkness and death. I'm in the kingdom of his dear son, God's dear son, Christ. Who rules your life really? Who really does? Does King Jesus rule it? Let's go back to Luke 6, 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, if you don't do what I say? Does he rule your life really? And that begs the fourth question. If he rules your life really, then what does he want you to do? What does he want you to do? I defy you to find any apostle, any person that Jesus called that he did not give assignment to. That he did not give direction to. You just hang out over there for a while. I'll come back for you later. It's not what he did. What does he want you to do? What specifically does God want you to do? What does Jesus, King Jesus, want you to do in his kingdom? The primary identification of his kingdom right now in this world is the church. What does he want you to do as an outpost of his kingdom? That's what a church is. We're one of many outposts. We prayed for an outpost of that kingdom this morning, Malvern. We heard a speaker that came from one of the outposts of that kingdom in our own city, Ridgecrest. We're many outposts, but we're all representatives of the kingdom. But the church is the manifestation of the kingdom of God here on earth, where Christ rules and reigns. What does he want you to do? You've got to answer that question. So, if fidelity is the value, I want to be faithful to King Jesus. And I express that faithfulness, that allegiance through obedience. And if that's really a missional habit, something that becomes ingrained in me, how do I develop it? How do I develop it? I have to go through these rather quickly. They're each weighty and meaty on their own, but consider these for a moment. The first means of developing the habit of obedience is committing to and developing the habit of worship because it's worship that fuels our obedience. Listen, the, the, the idea here is pretty simple behind what I'm about to say to you briefly. The better you and I understand who God in Christ is, the more we have elevated King Jesus in our own understanding as we read the scriptures about him, as we recognize who he is and what he's done, what he says and what he requires, the more we rightly see King Jesus and we honor him as such, how we read and how we sing and how we pray and all those things, as we elevate King Jesus, that is the necessary fuel to obedience. How could I not surrender to that king? How could I not submit to that king? How could I not be obedient to that king? By the same token, the contrary is also true. If we don't know Jesus very well, and we don't know who God says that he is, and we don't know his position in glory, we don't know how we're to respond and react to him because we don't understand him. We don't worship him. We take him for granted. We pray occasionally. We'll sing songs that we enjoy, but we don't engage in the habit of worshiping and honoring King Jesus. And where's the impetus? Where's the impetus to obey or to tell of him? Consider some of these global verses for a moment. I read one of these this morning, Psalm 96.3. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. Do I know his glory? Do I feel his glory? 
Do I think his works are marvelous? Do I celebrate them? Isaiah 12, 4, make known his deeds among the people. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Is his name exalted for me? Do I celebrate the mighty deeds of Jesus? What about Romans 15, 9? God sends us on mission. Why? In order that the Gentiles or the pagans might glorify God for his mercy. Do I glorify God for his mercy? Am I I always worshiping him because he's so merciful to me, a sinner? Or why does God do what he does? Romans 9, 17 says that he does his mighty works in history so that his name might be proclaimed in all the earth. I'm not going to proclaim his glory. I'm not going to proclaim his goodness. I'm not going to declare his might or his majesty unless I know those things, unless I celebrate those things, unless I honor those things. Worship is what fuels me. This brings me to one of my heroes. John Piper has famously said, Worship is the goal and fuel of missions. If you've never heard this statement before, let me share with you what he said. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Missions is our way of saying the joy of knowing Christ is not a private or tribal or national or ethnic privilege. It's for all. That's why we go. We have tasted the joy of worshiping Jesus, and we want all the families of the earth included. Makes sense, right? Psalm 22, 27, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and the families of the nations shall worship before you. Here's what Piper said. He said, seeking the worship of the nations is fueled by the joy of our own worship. You can't commend what you don't cherish. You can't proclaim what you don't prize. Worship is the fuel and goal of missions. So it starts there. It starts in my worship, my relationship with God. Who is God to me? That's what's going to come out of me. Worship the king through praying and singing is the first way to develop the habit. Second way to develop the habit is the conscious, intentional determination to yield to Jesus. I know that sounds obvious, but as I'm I'm praying, as I'm thinking, there's got to be this conscious effort in my mind, not passive. Not just I'm living my life and Jesus is an addition, and when I need him, I'll call on him. But this conscious effort... I want to do what Jesus wants me to do. I'm yielding to Jesus. What is this, where's his spirit leading me? What is his word saying to me? I'm yielding to him. And, and that brings up point number three, which connects to that one. How is that one done? Spend quality time in the word. And this is maybe obvious for some, but maybe not so much for us all. Spend quality time in the word, giving particular attention to what God tells us to do. Not just to understand, not just facts, interesting tidbits and nuances, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit cynical in this area, so forgive me in advance. But I guess I've been teaching for a long time. There's always a temptation for teachers to try to say something fresh or new, um, particularly in a way that no one's ever heard. We want something that's quotable or tweetable, or somebody say, wow, that's so profound. Never heard that before. But often that leads us into questionable territory, misunderstanding, misinterpreting, misapplying. There really is nothing new under the sun, as Solomon said. And when it comes to Scripture, there are plenty of brains and minds and theologians over the centuries far wiser and deeper than mine, and I would do better to research what the church has believed and said. But by the same token, there's a tendency, I think, among a lot of modern Christians to try to find something new, something interesting, something fascinating. Hey, I never saw this before. You know, if you add up these two numbers, you come up with this, and that's how many days King David sat on the throne. I mean, all these kind of things. I don't know. There's so many big picture things to follow. I don't need to get lost in the, in the high weeds. We've got to be looking at Scripture very concretely, not finding fascinating things or 
Finding things to do. What is his word saying to do? I mean, listen to what the scripture says. Don't merely listen to the word and deceive yourselves. Do what it says. The word primarily is a command to be obeyed. What has Jesus said? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I say? If you love me, he said, you'll do what I command. It's doing. So when you're in the word, as you're marveling at the goodness of God, and you're learning about God, also be focusing on, God, what do you want me to do? What does this passage compel me to do? And then ask in prayer, God, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do today, God? What do you want me to do for the next six months? What do you want me to do for the next five years, ten years? God, what do you want me to do? I mean, again, it sounds so basic, but as I'm sitting there writing these thoughts down, I I thought with conviction, when was the last time we honestly did that, really got on our face before God and kept asking, God, I want to walk with you. I want to be in the center of your will. What do you want me to be doing Because James speaks to that as well. It's the gist of James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. He uses the term wisdom, but if you want to know what God wants you to do, I would summarize James 1 by saying, ask him. If you want to know, ask. Ask him what he wants you to do. As you're doing this, as you're intentionally yielding, as you're looking to the Word for specific guidance and things to do, as you're praying, asking God to show you, don't forget to do what you already know to be doing. One of the least genuine things we can do as Christians is try to seek God's purpose for our life, God's call for our life, try to ascertain God's direction for our life when we're not doing the things already clearly laid out in Scripture right here in front of us. Why would God give me some unique plan and purpose and explicit set of directions for my life when I'm not obeying the things I know right here, right in front of me already? It's that long, slow obedience in the same direction as Eugene Peterson says that marks true Christian living, true Christian discipleship. Long and slow, same direction, consistently. And out of that consistency, God taps his faithful servants. You've shown yourself faithful in small things. And now God's ready to give you other things. In the faithfulness of daily living comes the call of God. And if you're not doing it, if you're doing it inconsistently or you haven't been doing it, then you know the recipe. Confess where you have failed. Repent, which means turn around and get back going again. Thankfully, God is full of grace. He's full of grace. That means our shortcomings are not permanent. That means our mistakes are not forever. That means our steps off course do not have to define us now permanently. But we can return We can be restored. And these things, this praying, seeking, asking, obeying, you do this, you repeat this every single day. Because the commitment to Jesus as Lord, the commitment to surrender, the commitment of fidelity, it's not occasional. It's not just initial that you make as a Christian. It's continual. You know, I read you the passage that Jesus said how Jesus was quoted by Matthew in Matthew 16. Luke carries the same conversation, and he adds something to it. In Luke 9, 23, Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. The life of allegiance is a daily life of allegiance. Today, King Jesus, I'm going to be faithful to you. Today, King Jesus, I'm going to follow you. Today, King Jesus, I'm going I'm to carry the banner. 
I'm not going to shirk it. I'm not going to shrink back from it. Today, King Jesus, I'm going to be faithful. You can count on me. If he wants you to drop it, I'm going to pick it up, and I'm going to keep marching because we're marching towards ultimate victory till the day that King Jesus comes back in glory and he rules and he reigns. Today, we've talked about the gospel a little bit. It's good news that God offers sinners like me and you life, purpose, eternity, a place in his kingdom, that King Jesus, perfect and good in all of his ways, invites us to be part of his kingdom, rescuing us from the kingdom of sin and darkness and death where Satan rules. Satan, that evil king who doesn't care if he's a covert king, doesn't care if he's acknowledged as king, still carries out his purposes, his malicious purposes of death and destruction to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus says, I'll invite you out of that. I'll invite you into a kingdom of joy and hope and life forever and ever. Where I'll be not only your king, Jesus will be your brother the Father will be your heavenly Father, and we will enjoy Him eternally. What's the aim of this gospel, though? Why did men like Paul carry the flag? Those apostles carry the flag. Christians of every generation who've been persecuted, why do they carry the flag? The Bible's most explicit statement of the gospel's purpose is given as the doxology or the end of the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 1, at the beginning, it tells what the gospel is and what he's calling us to. At the end, we see the end and aim of the gospel. Paul's praising God, the one who's able to strengthen the Romans, the one who deserves all the glory, the one who has all wisdom. And then listen to what he says, Romans 16, verses 25 and following. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, According to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, that's the coming of Christ in the world, not something that can't be known, but something that can only be revealed by God, the mystery revealed, but has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all the nations, according to the command of the eternal God. Remember, the gospel is ultimately a command. Repent, believe it, follow me. Those are commands, not just invitations. What's the purpose? To bring about... The obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. The obedience of faith. Faithful obedience or obedient faithfulness is what it means. If I said I'm wearing a sweater of cashmere, you know what that means. Just another way of saying he's wearing a cashmere sweater. I'm not. My jacket is, I think. What is obedience of faith? It's obedient allegiance, obedient fidelity, fidelity that's marked by what I do. I'm not talking about earning your way to salvation. I'm talking about the mark of someone who's truly a disciple, someone who's truly a follower of Christ, someone who is an everyday missionary. Obedient faithfulness. This is the purpose of the gospel. God has called us out. That's why when Jesus gave the Great Commission, what did he say? Go into all the world. Make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then what do you say? Teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. You're teaching faithful obedience, and I'm with you always to the end of the age. That's fidelity. So what about you? What do you do with that? And that is not just a Sunday morning devotional. That's a reordering of life. That's to go home and wrestle with this and say, is this true of me? Have I believed the right gospel? Have I accepted something that doesn't measure up to the fullness of the gospel of the kingdom, what Jesus actually said and what Scripture actually teaches? Have I simply just believed something and 
thought I could just you know, pray this prayer, receive this gift. Now I'm good forever, no matter what happens, no matter how I live, or have I yielded my life to King Jesus? Because that's where fulfillment is. That's where reward is. That's where life is to be found. So I give you this missional challenge this week, and it's kind of a multi-part. In the biggest of schemes, biggest picture, ask God what he wants you to do and do it. That's your challenge. And I've been praying that God would call some of us out, that there would be in this room people that God would call to missions, to ministry, full-time Christian service, that there'd be some that God would call to put down whatever you're doing for a season and go spend a month or two or six overseas or wherever it may be. Or others that would say, I can give a week or two weeks to serve in a short-term project. Even more that God would say, I want to commit to this ministry, this mission, and I'm going to do it for a season, for a year, whatever it may be. What is God calling you to do? Where is God sending you? What does God want to do with that seed that is you? Where does he want it to be planted so that it can die and grow into what God wants it to be? I want you to do something, if you would. If you feel that God is calling you in any way, or you're exploring what God might want you to do, we want to try to help and encourage that. That's part of our role and responsibility. We try to make it as simple as we can so that we can communicate quickly with you, so efficiently and expeditiously we can get you connected to places where, where you can serve and minister. So what we've done, we've, there's a little QR code that's going to appear on the screen. Simple tool, just a device to communicate with us. You can take your phone, you can shine it right up there. Is it up there? There it is. It's like magic. You can shine your phone right there. It'll take you to a simple form right there on our website. And on there, you can just feel, hey, contact me. I'm interested. I, I want to go on a mission trip. Tell me how I can do that. Or I feel like God's been working in me. I want to talk to somebody about calling. Or I want to serve. Wh where are the needs in the church? Or I'm looking for something that's meaningful and valuable. Where can I serve the kingdom of God in this community, in this city? Where can I do that? And we will get you connected. We've, we've got our, our people on our staff. We're working towards this end. We want to get you connected. And if there's some of you that feel like God is calling you to ministry or missions, you say, I think that's what God wants me to do with the rest of my life. I want to get together with you. I want to talk about it with you. We want, as a church, to encourage you. We want to partner with you. We want to help you get trained up. We want to help you get resourced. We want to help you get sent out. We want to be part of that. So if God's calling you, you can take that, that code simply right there, and you can respond to it. In just a moment, we're going to give, give an invitation. And here's what I want that to look like. I'm hoping and praying that this space here around the stage will be just filled with people praying for God to lead them in what he wants them to do. For all those who recognize that Jesus is king, in a statement of our surrender to his authority, our submission to his will, our desire to serve him wherever he sees fit, whatever capacity, whatever location, that we're going to be up here seeking it. And, and not that that's the end-all, be-all. You may be seeking this for days, weeks, months to come, but this is where we're going to be. And we're going to say, God, today, today I want to plant that seed. I'm going to let go of it. I'm going to let you take it. Do with it what you want. Me, this seed that you have, this new life you've given me, I want to die to self so that in losing my life I can find it for your sake, for the sake of the nations, for the sake of the gospel. I want you to do that where you pray. And if any of you are feeling a calling already, you know what that is. God's been working your life for some time. This is just the... This is just the cap on the end of it. This is just the confirmation, an opportunity for you to respond to it, to share it. There'll be several of us here, pastors here. We'll be standing here waiting for you. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to encourage you. We'd love to talk with you about whatever that is. We're going to sing a song in just a minute that you're probably well familiar with if you've been in church, I Surrender All. If you mean that, sing that. If you mean that, commit to that today. What does God want you to do today? Father, move us according to your will Stir our hearts, I pray. Grab our emotions. Capture our thinking. 
Lord, prevail over our wills. Lord, whether it's one or a hundred or whatever you choose to do, Father, call us out. Lord, some feeling just this general sense, I need to be doing something. I don't know what it is. I need to be giving back. I need to be serving. I, 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 need, to be, I need to be using the gifts you've given me. I, I want to be part. I, God, what do you want me to do? Father, call them. Father, we have mission partners just all over the place. We, we want to send people to Guatemala and to Kenya and to India. We want to send people to New Orleans and, and Vermont. We want to send people just all over, Father. We want to send people to the harbor and, and to the ark and into the neighborhoods. We want mentors who will who mentor in our schools and tutors. We want after school people who volunteer for kids in need right here in our backyard. We want people to serve our young families in our preschool. We want people to serve with our students. We want people to volunteer to take meals to our shut-ins. And Lord, there's so many needs just everywhere. Father, we've got to be doing. We're servants of the King. So, Father, I pray now that you would show us, your Holy Spirit would guide us. Your word says, if any of us lack wisdom, let us ask. Wisdom, knowing what to do, how to do it, when to do it. We're asking for that now, Father. Show us. For those in this room who have been reluctant to do what you've already been calling them to do and compelling them to do, and Father, I pray they would yield that reluctance to you. Father, forgive us for slow obedience. And Father, today we accept the call. And God, if there's anyone here, you're saying, I want you to be on that mission field. I want you to be planning a church. I want you to be pastoring people. I want you to be going to seminary. Whatever it may be, Father, I pray they would know that indelibly. And Lord, may we be a place and a people that nurtures that, develops that in them, and cultivates that and sends them out. So Lord, whatever it is, here we are. You're a king. We are your people. We're your glad people. We're your glad servants. We're happy to be part of your kingdom. We long for the day when every knee bows and every tongue confesses. We long to see your rule and reign over the new heavens, the new earth, and we long to rule and reign with you, enjoying you, enjoying your perfect goodness, infinite joy, incomprehensible love, peace, Forever and ever, we want that, we long for that. Until then, we will follow you, King Jesus, no matter what. We make this so, I pray today in Jesus' name, amen.